Welcome to an episode of Explain Blockchain. This podcast is about blockchain technologies and its latest developments. My name is Peter and let's roll the intro. Alright everyone and welcome to another episode of Explain Blockchain. My name is Peter and this episode is about how to scale the blockchain. This topic has become an important topic in the last year because the Bitcoin blockchain has shown so much adoption that there were just too many transactions to be handled and it has shown the limitations of the infrastructure of the blockchain. Now there are a couple of problems particularly with the Bitcoin blockchain. The Bitcoin blockchain at the moment only can handle seven transactions per second. And that is a problem if later on many more people want to do transactions. Because if we compare it, for example, to the Visa network, the Visa network can handle around 50,000 transactions per second. The scaling issues of Bitcoin are mostly due to two parameters. The first one is the block time and the second one is the block size. Now the first one, the block time, is at the moment around 10 minutes. So every 10 minutes a block is added to the blockchain. But if this would be faster, if this time would be shorter, then you could also add more blocks to the blockchain and you could also handle more transactions per second. The second one is the block size and that is currently limited to one megabyte. So with a one megabyte limit, there can only be so many transactions in a block. And these two parameters together result in the theoretical throughput of transactions of seven transactions per second for the Bitcoin blockchain. Ethereum has a similar problem. So this problem is not only a problem of the Bitcoin blockchain, but every blockchain there is suffers from scalability issues at the moment. I will talk about the Ethereum problem, the global gas limit, namely, in, the, in a future episode where I will also talk about the Ethereum blockchain more. And the general problem is that if you compare, for example, the Bitcoin blockchain to the Visa system, in the Bitcoin blockchain, every single node that is connected to the network needs to be able to, first of all, receive every transaction. That's why the block time is, for example, 10 minutes, so that every broadcasted transaction can reach every node within these 10 minutes. And then also the maximum amount of the blockchain cannot increase too rapidly, because if we would have blocks of multiple gigabytes, you as a owner of a full node also need to really invest in storage and in a good bandwidth so that you can download and store all blocks. And that is why the block size is limited. But these limitations actually have shown some big problems or have resulted in big problems in particularly the last year, 2017, which were that on the Bitcoin blockchain, only so many transactions could be handled per second. And if you wanted to have your transactions handled quicker, then you also had to pay a higher fee because miners always take the payment, the transactions with the highest fees and include them in the next block. And that actually led the transaction fees of Bitcoin payments to skyrocket. And there were a couple of cents in the beginning of the year and in the end of the year, they were around on average 40 US dollar. So that's a lot. So in order to scale the blockchain, particularly the Bitcoin blockchain, so that many more people can adopt it and can use it in their everyday life. There were some solutions proposed and I would like to go through some of them you might have heard before. 
The first one is the segregated witness or segwit proposal. The segregated witness proposal has two parts. One of them is a restructuring or a new structure for transactions. And the second one is a different way to calculate the block size. Previously, a transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain contained an input and an output field. And in the input field, you would put the ID of a unspent transaction that you want to use and your unlocking script for that particular transaction. And then in the output, you would simply put the address to which you want to send a certain amount of Bitcoins or Satoshis and also your own address or another address where you want to spend or send the rest of the of the coins to. What the segregated witness proposal proposed was to separate or to take out the witness script or the unlocking script from the input and put it into a new section which was called witness. And this first of all had some security reasons and the issue they wanted to solve was the transaction malleability. And the problem here was that you could change your witness script, your unlocking script, without invalidating your transaction. But by changing your witness script, the overall hash, the overall unique identifier of your transaction would change. And this is normally not a problem. So let's say you want to make a transaction, you create your transaction, you sign it or you give it the unlocking script and you broadcast it to the blockchain. It would be included in the next block, hopefully, and then put on the blockchain. And then once it's on the blockchain, it's confirmed at least with one block. You take the ID of that particular transaction and then can use it for making other transactions with it. And that ID that is once of the transaction that is on the blockchain will never change. So that's set. But the problem of malleability applies when you use unconfirmed transactions and to make other transactions from that. Namely, when you create other transactions from your initial transaction, so-called children transactions, they always rely on the ID of the parent of the original transaction. And if that ID would change, all your other transactions afterwards, your children transactions, would be invalid because they would all point back to a transaction that does not exist anymore. So this has as a consequence, first of all, that you could not trust unconfirmed transactions because as long as they're unconfirmed, somebody could just swoop in there, change your unlocking script and broadcast the transaction again with a different ID. And maybe they would make it first into a block and then your transaction would be invalid. And this problem of malleability will come back or will become important once I talk about the Lightning Network later in this episode. And Segregated Witness solved the malleability problem by restructuring the transaction. So it took out the unlocking script, the witness script from the input, which could be changed and moved it to another section, which was called the witness section. And the transaction ID would not be calculated or hashed by using all the data. So also including the unlocking script, but only the data in the input and output fields, which did not contain data you could change without making the transaction invalid. So that means that even with unconfirmed transactions, you could use the same transaction ID for also children transactions. And you would always be sure that the original transaction ID would not change anymore. And this becomes important once I talk more about the Lightning Network later on.
So to sum it up, the segregated witness proposal had two parts. One of them is to take the witness script, the unlocking script, and put it into a different section, a witness section. And the second part was a different way of calculating the block size. Because previously the block size was calculated with the raw data, so how much space it takes up on your, on your hard drive. But with a segregated witness, it's changed to a weighted block size. For every byte that was in the witness section, so every unlocking script and so on, you only gave a weight of 1. And for all other bytes in the transaction, so the inputs and outputs, you would have a weight of 4. Now the maximum weight of a block would be 4 million. This would eventually, if you take the average weight of a transaction, lead to a block size that is slightly below 4 megabytes. So segregated witness increased the block size to around 4 megabytes. So that's segregated witness. First of all, a restructuring of the transaction data structure. And secondly, also a change in how you ca calculate the block size. The second proposal of how to make the Bitcoin blockchain more scalable was simply to increase the hard cap on the block size. So the hard cap is simply a parameter set in the Bitcoin software and it was set to one megabyte in the original code. But then some people, like for example Bitcoin Cash or Bcash, where you want to call it, proposed to simply increase this value in the code. And by increasing the block size, they would also be able to put more transactions into each block, leading to a lower transaction fee, hopefully. However, this approach has a major drawback, which is that it's only a short-term solution. Because if you want to scale the Bitcoin blockchain to, for example, the throughput that Visa has, which is 50,000 transactions per second, then you would need a block size of 8.5 gigabytes. And those 8.5 gigabytes would occur every 10 minutes. So you have to download it within 10 minutes and also verify everything in it as a full node. This would lead to a storage problem of 1.2 terabytes a day. So a full node or also minor, but every, every node on the Bitcoin network needs to be able to store 1.2 terabytes a day if you want to use this approach to scale to the Visa network. And this would lead to centralization of the Bitcoin network because only a few owners of nodes will be able to invest that much storage capacity, 1.2 terabytes a day, and also invest in very high-speed internet to download the 8.5 gigabyte every 10 minutes. And then also only fewer miners would be able to store all the transactions that come in and then create these 8.5 gigabyte hashes, have the computational power and so on. So the Bitcoin network would become more centralized, relying on fewer nodes and fewer miners. And the threshold of participating in the network would become really high because you have a very high initial investment. And it would also lead to the problem that the blockchain or the blocks that are added to the blockchain could not be validated in full anymore because you have to validate all 8.5 gigabyte of transactions within 10 minutes before you get the next block. So simply increasing the block size is a solution that seems appealing in the beginning because of its simplicity. But in the long term, if you really want to scale Bitcoin to a competitive level, then it will not work out eventually. So eventually, I would like to talk about off-chain solutions. 
And this means that not all transactions between parties are put on the blockchain, but only a summary, a total of all transactions made is eventually put on the blockchain. A popular project that emerged as an off-chain solution is the Lightning Network. And you can think of the Lightning Network as a tap that you open either, for example, let's say with a bar or with a friend. So first of all, let's say you are in a bar and you want to have a couple of drinks in the evening. And when you come to the bar, you put down the money on the table and you open a tap. And, in the, and every time when you get a drink, you subtract the amount from the amount you paid initially. Before you leave the bar, you then pay up and then you calculate how much money you actually have to pay and what's the difference to the money you paid in. And that money you paid in, you get back and the other money goes to the bar owner. This is called a unilateral payment channel between you and the bar. I will talk about payment channels in a minute. And then you also have bilateral payment channels, which are between two parties. And that means that both parties can pay each other. With unilateral, only you pay one party, so it's only one way. With bilateral, it's two-way, both parties can pay each other. You can think about the fact or the use case where you sometimes pay a small amount to your friend and your friend pays you sometimes a small amount back. For example, to reimburse that friend for a drink that she paid. In this case, you could make a transaction every time you want to pay back your friend and vice versa. Or you could also, at one point in time, just both put down a certain amount of money, let's say both 50 bucks, and you have a tap of 100 bucks. And whenever you pay something, you just add what you should get back to your own balance. So then you, for example, get back 55 out of the 100 bucks and your friend only gets back 45. And then whenever your friend pays something, the same happens. The amount that that friend should get back also increases in your share of the 100 bucks decreases. And eventually, in one point in time, when you say, now I would like to settle this payment, then you just take out what you should get and your friend takes out what your friend should get. And this is a bilateral payment channel. And the first step you have to take is to create a two out of two multi-signature pay-to-script hash transaction. This is a mouthful. Let's go through it step by step. First of all, a pay-to-script hash transaction is a special type of transaction. Because previously, you made a transaction in which you put in an input and an output. And whenever you broadcast that transaction, the coins you send will automatically be sent, quote-unquote, to the output address. But with the pay-to-script hash transaction, the output will kind of be locked. So it will not be spent yet. And the output contains a script that needs to be fulfilled. So you need to put in some input that fulfills that script that lets it return true. And if that's the case, then you can use that transaction to make a normal transaction where you send the bitcoins to a certain address. So you, can't, you use the pay to script hash transaction in order to lock some funds and anybody who holds the parameters that unlock those funds can also spend the funds. And now the two out of two multi-signature transaction. This means that you need two different signatures in order to unlock the pay-to-script hash transaction. This is different from transactions about which we have talked earlier, which only need one signature of the address holder to send funds. But a multi-signature transaction needs multiple signatures. So back to how to create a payment channel. 
First of all, you and your friend, you create a, as I said, two out of two multi-signature pay-to-script hash transaction, where both of you put in an input. So for example, you put in 50 Bitcoin and your friend also puts in 50 Bitcoin or an unspent transaction that is worth 50 Bitcoin. This transaction is called the funding transaction. And you exchange that funding transaction, but you do not yet sign it. Before you do that, you and your friend, you both create a refunding transaction that only sends the original amount that you and your friend put in to the pay-to-script hash transaction and sends it back to your own account or to your friend's account. So it's simply a refund. Then you take your copy of that refunding transaction and share it with your friend who signs it. And also your friend sign, sends you his refunding transaction that you sign. So you both hold a copy of a refunding transaction with both signatures on it. So before the funding transaction hits the blockchain, you already have a refunding transaction that you can use to get your funds back. And this is important because if you would put the funding transaction onto the blockchain before you have the refunding transaction, your friend, whom you then have to trust, could simply not give you his signature. So you could not create a refunding transaction and not get back the funds you spent. So that's why important to first have the refunding transaction before you sign the, trans the funding transaction and put it onto the blockchain. After you have the refunding transaction, you exchange the signatures for the funding transaction and you publish that funding transaction to the blockchain. This is how you create a payment channel. Because now you have opened the tab, you both paid in a certain amount of money and you already have the refunding transaction. So at any point in time, you can close that payment channel. So pay out yourself and your friend and your friend can do the same. So it's again, trustless. Now, making payments in the payment channel is very easy. It's all about the refunding or also called the commitment transaction that you signed with your friend. And whenever you want to make a payment to your friend, everything you do is you decrease your amount that you should get back from the refunding transaction and increase the amount that your friend should get back. So you just change the balances there a little bit. And this is practically a payment because whenever your friend then says, I would like to have my money, he or she broadcasts the refunding transaction to the blockchain and gets back a higher amount of Bitcoin than he or she paid into the funding transaction. But now the problem is that you, in order to make payments to a certain party, need to create a payment channel first. And for that, you also need to create one funding transaction, which costs you a transaction fee. And then also for closing the channel, you need to broadcast the refunding or commitment transaction, which is again costly because you have to pay transaction costs for that. And the Lightning Network is called Network because it is not a direct peer-to-peer -peer connection, but it is actually a mesh, a network of all these payment channels. Because let's say that you want to pay your friend, but you don't have a payment channel yet. However, you have a payment channel with a third party, and that person also has a payment channel with your friend. Now, the Lightning Network enables you to make payment through that intermediary, or maybe also multiple intermediaries, to your friend. So you don't need to open up directly a payment channel to your friend. And this works a little bit different from the direct peer-to-peer -peer payments, but you actually need to pay the intermediary and the intermediary needs to be paying your friend. And this obviously, again, has trust problems because if you would pay the intermediary, but then the intermediary just says, no, I don't want to forward that money, I'll just keep it, then you effectively lost your funds. And if the intermediary pays your friend, but your friend says, well, 
I didn't get your payment, but the intermediary actually had to pay me, then you also cannot ensure or you cannot prove that your funds actually went to your friend. Now, the Lightning Network solves this trust issue by using hashed time-locked contracts, also transactions. And these hashed time-locked contracts have two requirements in the transaction. The first requirement is that you need a certain data R that you can give to the transaction. The transaction hashes the data and verifies that the hash is equal to a hash that is in the locking script. So you need the data R to unlock the transaction. And the second one is basically a refund after a certain time. So if you fail to unlock the transaction with the data R in a certain amount of time, then the initial payer can simply spend the transaction and refund herself through that. These hashed time lock contracts are a little bit abstract, but I will walk you now through how you make payments in a with an intermediary on the Lightning Network, and then they will become more clear, I hope. So first of all, again, you want to pay your friend through an intermediary. What your friend first needs to do is generate random data, and let's call it R. Your friend hashes this R and creates the hash H with it. Your friend then sends H to you as the sender of the payment, and you send the funds together with this hash H to the intermediary. The intermediary at this point cannot spend the funds you just sent because the intermediary either needs R to unlock the hash time-locked contract or the transaction you sent, or after a while, if the intermediary doesn't forward your payment, you simply get back your funds and you haven't lost anything. Ideally, the intermediary forwards your funds to your friend, the receiver, together with the hash H. And your friend cannot spend these funds unless your friend broadcasts this transaction together with the data R to the blockchain. And this means that the intermediary receives R as well and can then get the funds or unlock the transaction that you've made to the intermediary. And eventually the intermediary pays your friend the funds you forwarded together with the hash H. And that means your friend successfully received your funds. Now let's talk about the two scenarios again that are posing a trust issue here. The first one being that the intermediary doesn't forward your funds to your friend. If the intermediary doesn't do that, he or she cannot spend the funds because the intermediary needs the data R to do so. And after a while, you will just get back your funds after the time-locked contract times out. Then you can just get back your funds and the intermediary doesn't have anything. That's scenario one. Scenario two is that your friend received the funds from the intermediary, but just says, well, those, those weren't your funds, but maybe those from the intermediary. If your friend received those funds, your friend's only able to spend these funds when she broadcasts R together with a, a transaction to the blockchain. And that also means that you first of all have the transaction. So you see that the what the intermediary paid the your friend. And you also have the data R. So you can prove that your R, when hashed, unlocks the transaction. And you also have a proof that you paid your friend. And when your friend broadcasts the transaction together with the data R to the blockchain. Also the intermediary will get this R from the blockchain and can also unlock the payment you made to the intermediary. So then everybody gets the money, the intermediary from you and your friend from the intermediary. You can prove that your friend received the payment because you have R and everybody's happy. 
So this in a very short summary is the Lightning Network and how you make payments via the Lightning Network. The Lightning Network has some very significant implications and improvements to the Bitcoin blockchain. First of all, you can make very tiny fraction of a cent payments to your friend, for example. So micro point payments, for example, a coffee or like a couple of cents for a chewing gum are possible using Bitcoin. Because everything you need to do is just send the transaction, kind of like an email, to the intermediary and then the intermediary sends it to your friend. So the only cost you have is the is a transaction cost of data through a through the internet, through a network. So that's almost nothing. And then this also means you can confirm or you can receive and send payments almost instantaneously. Because again, you just need to send bytes through the internet to your friend. And that might take a couple of milliseconds and your friend immediately has the payment and the confirmation. And still all these payments are cryptographically secured and are just as secure as Bitcoin payments in general. The only downside of this is that first of all you need to create a payment channel which might cost you a couple of bucks and then if you want to actually get your Bitcoin you need to close the payment channel. So those are the only two situations where you have to pay some money and uh, yeah if you want to really get paid then you have to actually pay a little fee to close the payment channel. And another problem of this is always because the Lightning Network eventually will not likely be a mesh so that every node is connected to multiple other nodes, but it's rather likely that the Lightning Network will become more like a centralized network in which central hubs have the most payment channels with other peers. And um, one thing that is always to be taken into consideration here is the 80-20 centralization rule, which you see which is kind of like a natural rule emerging in not organized networks, for example, the internet. So if you look at the internet, 20% of the websites receive 80% of the traffic. And this is a, a kind of natural rule that emerged in also a lot of other networks. And it's also very likely to emerge in the Lightning Network. So this was the Lightning Network. If you want to learn more about it, I will put some resources into the show notes. Now, now we talked about the Lightning Network and about how to scale the blockchain in general. So just to sum it up, first of all, I talked about the segregated witness protocol that restructured the transaction structure and added a new section, which is called the witness section, taking out the unlocking script, the witness script from the input transactions. Also, the segregated witness protocol included a new way of calculating the block size in the Bitcoin network. So the block size effectively rose or increased and also would then be able to take more transactions into every block also effectively increasing the transaction throughput per second the second part is we talked about the simply increasing the block size which we've seen is a problem in the long term when you really want to scale bitcoin upwards and eventually i talked about the lightning network which offers you an off-chain solution to make micro payments between peer-to-peers i think i will just stop the episode here there couple of more things to talk about but I will rather put a link to a an article that talks about different things like sharding and plasma into the show notes and you can read them up there. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I don't know exactly what the next episode will be about but I will keep you posted on Twitter. You can again follow this podcast if you want on Twitter. The handle is explainchain or you can also go to the website which is explainblockchain.io. Thank you very much for listening and I will see you next time.